I'm Jonathan Goldstein, and you're listening to Wiretap on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. Today's episode, Being Invisible. When I was a kid, my aunt had a bathroom with two mirrored walls facing each other. Along with velvet wallpaper, that was a big decorating move in the 70s. I remember standing between the mirrors and thinking how if it wasn't for me obscuring the view into the center, I'd be able to stare directly into the infinite. How I longed to be invisible, to be able to see yet not be seen. Invisibility had other advantages, too. I'd avoid being picked on in the schoolyard, and never would I have to be called upon by the teacher. I remember as she scanned the classroom, trying to shrink within myself, to crumple up like tinfoil, as though invisibility could be achieved through sheer force of will. Now, as an adult, invisibility still has its allure. No one to judge you at the gym for your meager calves. No one to impede your march to the dessert table with small talk. Ah, to be a saucer of pastries floating across a reception hall. And yet there's always something within us that wants to be noticed, to be held within someone's gaze. For how else might we be loved? Even in our lowest moments, when our desire for invisibility is at its greatest, there will always be that little voice that softly cries out against all hope and reason, look at me, see me. All of us want to be in other people's thoughts, to be important to someone. My name is Stephen Gross, and I'm a practicing psychoanalyst, and I've written a book called The Examined Life. Amanda P., a 28-year-old single woman, returns home to London after a work trip to America. She's been in New York for 10 days. She lives alone. She sets her briefcase down on her doorstep, and as she turns her key in the lock, an idea takes hold. I had this fantasy, I saw it like a film, she says. Turning the key triggers some sort of detonator and the whole flat blows up, the door exploding off its hinges towards me, killing me instantly. I was imagining that terrorists had been in my flat and had carefully primed a bomb to kill me. Why would I have such a crazy fantasy? Or take, for example, a woman is walking down the street smiling to herself. Simon A., an attractive and well-dressed architect, becomes convinced that she is laughing at his clothes. Most, if not all, of us have had irrational fantasies at one time or another, and yet we rarely acknowledge them, even to spouses or close friends. We don't know what they signify or say about us. Are they a sign that we're breaking down or momentarily mad? Anyone can become paranoid, that is, develop an irrational fantasy of being betrayed, mocked, exploited, or harmed. But we are more likely to become paranoid if we are insecure, disconnected, alone. Above all, paranoid fantasies are a response to the feeling that we are being treated with indifference. In other words, paranoid fantasies are disturbing 
but they're a defense. They protect us from a more disastrous emotional state, namely the feeling that no one is concerned about us, that no one cares. The thought, so-and-so has betrayed me, protects us from the more painful thought, no one thinks about me. With old age, the likelihood of developing a serious psychological disorder decreases, and yet the chances of developing paranoia increases. In hospital, I've heard elderly men and women complain, the nurses here are trying to poison me. I didn't misplace my glasses. My daughter has obviously stolen them. You don't believe me, but I can assure you my room is bugged. They're reading my post. Please take me home. I'm not safe here. To be sure, the old are sometimes abused, tricked by family members, and mistreated by caregivers. So it is important to listen carefully to their fears. But all too frequently, the elderly face death feeling forgotten. Women and men who were once attractive and important find themselves increasingly overlooked. My experience is that paranoid fantasies are often a response to the world's disregard. The paranoid knows that someone is thinking about him. I asked Amanda P. to tell me more about arriving home from New York. I love my flat, she said, but coming home after a trip is one of those moments when I really hate being single. I opened the door, and there's ten days' posts on the mat. The fridge is empty. The house is cold. No one has been cooking, so the place smells abandoned. It's depressing. It's the exact opposite of what it was like to come home from school as a child. My mom or Nan or both were there making my tea. Someone was always waiting for me. As she spoke, it became clear that Amanda P.'s momentary paranoid fantasy of turning her key and being blown up by terrorists was, to answer her question, not crazy at all. For a minute, the fantasy frightened her. But ultimately, this fear saved her from feeling alone. The thought, someone wants to kill me, gave her an experience of being hated, but not forgotten. She existed in the mind of the terrorist. Her paranoia shielded her from the catastrophe of indifference. Misconnection, man for woman, the Q train. I saw you on the Manhattan-bound Brooklyn Q train. I was wearing a blue striped t-shirt and a pair of maroon pants. You were wearing a vintage red skirt and a smart white blouse. We both wore glasses. You got on at DeKalb and sat across from me, and we made eye contact briefly. I fell in love with you a little bit in that stupid way where you completely make up a fictional version of the person you're looking at and fall in love with that person. But still, I think there was something there. Several times we looked at each other and then looked away. I tried to think of something to say to you, maybe pretend I didn't know where I was going and ask you for directions, or say something nice about your boot-shaped earrings, or just say, hot day, 
It all seems so stupid. At one point, I caught you staring at me, and you immediately averted your eyes. You pulled a book out of your bag and started reading it, a biography of Lyndon Johnson. But I noticed you never once turned a page. My stop was Union Square, but at Union Square, I decided to stay on, rationalizing that I could just as easily transfer to the 7 at 42nd Street. But then I didn't get off at 42nd Street either. You must have missed your stop as well, because when we got all the way to the end of the line, we both just sat there in the car, waiting. I cocked my head at you inquisitively. You shrugged and held up your book as if that was the reason you'd missed your stop. Still, I said nothing. We took the train all the way back down, down through Astoria, across the East River, weaving through Midtown from Times Square to Herald Square to Union Square, under Soho and Chinatown, up across the bridge, back into Brooklyn, past Barclays and Prospect Park, past Flatbush and Midwood and Sheepshead Bay, all the way to Coney Island. And when we got to Coney Island, I knew I had to say something. Still, I said nothing. And so we went back up, up and down the queue line over and over. We caught the rush hour crowds and then saw them thin out again. We watched the sun set over Manhattan as we crossed the East River. I gave myself deadlines. I'll talk to her before Newkirk. I'll talk to her before Canal. Still, I remained silent. sat on the train saying nothing to each other. We survived on bags of Skittles sold to us by kids raising money for their basketball teams. We must have heard a million mariachi bands, had our faces nearly kicked in by a hundred thousand breakdancers. I gave money to the beggars until I ran out of singles. When the train went above ground, I'd get text messages and voicemails. Where are you? What happened? Are you okay? Until my phone ran out of battery. I'll talk to her before daybreak. I'll talk to her before Tuesday. The longer I waited, the harder it got. What could I possibly say to you now, now that we've passed this same station for the hundredth time? Maybe if I could go back to the first time the queue switched over to the local R line for the weekend, I could have said, well, this is inconvenient. But I couldn't very well say it now, could I? I would kick myself for days after every time you sneezed. Why hadn't I said, bless you? That tiny gesture could have been enough to pivot us into a conversation. But here, in stupid silence, still we sat. There were nights when we were the only two souls in the car, perhaps even on the whole train. And even then I felt self-conscious about bothering you. Yeah, she's still reading her book, I thought. She doesn't want to talk to me. Still, there were moments when I felt a connection. Someone would shout something crazy about Jesus and we'd immediately look at each other to register our reactions. A couple of teenagers would exit, holding hands, and we'd both think, young love.
for 60 years, we sat in that car, just barely pretending not to notice each other. I got to know you so well, if only peripherally. I memorized the folds of your body, the contours of your face, the patterns of your breath. I saw you cry once after you glanced at a neighbor's newspaper. I wondered if you were crying about something specific or just the general passage of time. So unnoticeable until suddenly noticeable. I wanted to comfort you, wrap my arms around you, assure you I knew everything would be fine. But it felt too familiar. I stayed glued to my seat. One day, in the middle of the afternoon, you stood up as the train pulled into Queensborough Plaza. It was difficult for you, this simple task of standing up. You hadn't done it in 60 years. Holding onto the rails, you managed to get yourself to the door. You hesitated briefly there, perhaps waiting for me to say something, giving me one last chance to stop you. But rather than spit out a lifetime of suppressed almost conversations, I said nothing, and I watched you slip out between the closing, sliding doors. It took me a few more stops before I realized you were really gone. I kept waiting for you to re-enter the subway car, sit down next to me, rest your head on my shoulder. Nothing would be said. Nothing would need to be said. When the train returned to Queensborough Plaza, I craned my neck as we entered the station. Perhaps you were there, on the platform, still waiting. Perhaps I would see you, smiling and bright, your long gray hair waving in the wind from the oncoming train. But no, you were gone. And I realized, most likely, I would never see you again. And I thought about how amazing it is that you can know somebody for 60 years and yet still not really know that person at all. I stayed on the train until it got to Union Square, at which point I got off and transferred to the L. now where we're seeing people get married for the second time Mm -hmm. and so my buddy brian getting married again and there's something about like 40 year olds having a bachelor party that is a little depressing you know there's something when we were all younger and everybody was getting married it was really fun you know like those were days of like you know complete debauched insanity but now you know we went went out for brian's bachelor party in his minivan (laughs) You know, and there's like kids' toys in the back and books and like crackers everywhere. You know, going to a strip club literally that we found on Yelp. <laughs> like that's that's the level we're at. Uh-huh. Plus, by the way, Brian's GPS is the voice of Dora the Explorer. I assume for his kids. I don't know why. And so she's the voice of the GPS. She's telling us how to get to the strip club. <laughs> So we're already like like a hilarious nightmare scenario of sad people. 
And here's the deal. Los Angeles is a massive, sprawling city. And so we're driving in, into an area past downtown, which is already dicey, and it's getting super gross. It seemed like populated by kind of shady folks, I'll say. Mm-hmm. We start seeing signs for other strip clubs that we are not going to, that are, by the way, very poorly rated on Yelp. At a certain point, Brian starts getting nervous because there's a car that's like riding us really close, like tailgating us, and has been, I guess, for a couple of blocks. And Brian's minivan has like two rows of back seats, so I'm in like the back, the way, way back. Mm-hmm. So I, I turn around and I can see it's like thugs. Door of the Explorer says, take a left, we take a left, they take a left. These guys are matching us turn for turn, which instantly makes everybody very nervous. Door of the Explorer is going crazy. Everybody's kind of freaking out. And to add to the kind of chaos in this minivan, Brian manages to drive us into like a cul-de-sac, basically, like a de- like essentially a dead end. And um, Brian turns around to try and get out, but these guys have now come up right in front of us. We're now we're headlight to headlight, but we can't get past them. And four guys get out of that car, and Brian very like such a sweet guy is like, maybe their car is broken. <laughs> he, he instantly is like flips into good Samaritan mode. And I though am like, this is bad. Scary looking dudes are coming up to the car. They, it was almost like a parody of bad guys. They had like face tattoos. One of them was wearing like a, some sort of like crazy hat. Like I like that looked like almost like a crown or something. Maybe it was like a thing from Burger King or something. I honestly, <laughs> one of the guys. Why would somebody a crown. be wearing a, a a paper children's crown? Jonathan, I have no idea. But I will say he made it work. Like it looked very frightening. Like in a way, I felt like he must be the boss. <laughs> they get up to the car. Brian rolls down his window. And the main guy, the guy with face tattoos, very matter-of-factly just goes, everybody out. And Brian's like, excuse me? And the guy goes, everybody out of the car. Brian was convinced the guy had a gun, like, tucked into his belt. I, I didn't see it. I was in the way, way back. But all of my friends start exiting the car. But... Nobody, um, so stupid, because in order for me to get out, the seat has to be, like, completely put down and moved forward so I can exit. Mm -hmm. But before anybody even has a chance to put the seat down so I can get out, these guys, they just start getting in. So now I'm stuck. They close the door, and we drove off. So, I, I mean, were they kidnapping you? Were you, you were you a hostage? That's what I thought. When they shut the door and we drove off, that's when I was like, oh, I'm being kidnapped. Everybody else is okay. I'm being abducted. I start, like, spiraling. Like, I'm in a full body sweat. Because I instantly was like, this is it. They're going to kill me. But they're not looking at me. They're not talking to me. 
they're not talking to each other about me. It's such a occurred to me, like, they're not even aware I'm there. They're all laughing. They're having the best time. They can't believe the, the look on Brian's face. They thought it was so funny. Like, this to them was a hilarious night out. Wait, wait, hang on a second. How, how is it that they wouldn't notice a, a full-grown man in, in the car with them? I, believe me, I'm not. I'm not a slight man. You know, I'm a. I'm a. I'm a proper sized man with a beard and crazy hair. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm assuming that what they were on drugs. I mean, they definitely were on drugs. That was evident. And then maybe I don't know. Maybe they thought I was like one of the other guys' friends or something. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, listen, it was dark. I'm in the way, way back of a minivan, like at night. You know, I have no idea. But regardless. They don't see me. You know, now they're talking about getting food, and they say, oh, let's go, let's go get hamburgers. So we get all the way to In-N-Out, and we're in the drive through line, and they still are not noticing me. They're rolling the windows down, they're ordering from the people, blah, 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 blah. Stuff gets passed around, everybody's eating. Dora the Explorer is now directing us towards some house party, and at a certain point, they all light a joint and start passing it around. And it goes all the way around the front and comes around to the guys in the back seat. And this one guy who takes a bunch of hits off of the joint just hands it back to me. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is it. They're gonna like kill me or something. So I take the joint I don't smoke it, and I just pass it back. And the guy, I'm assuming because he's super stoned, just doesn't do anything. Passes it up front, and that's that. And then we pull up in front of some weird house. There's clearly a party going on, and they all get out. They all go into the house. And then I'm just sitting alone in Brian's minivan in some neighborhood I have no idea. I grab the GPS, I jump out the door, and I start running down the street. Wait a second. Did, didn't you, I mean, I mean didn't, didn't you just consider getting into the front seat and driving the car away? No. John, they took the keys. This is their car now. What, what am I going to... Oh, no, no. You're right, Jonathan. I should have just hot-wired the car Magnum P.I. style. Oh, okay. I did what I could. I took the GPS because I didn't know where I was, and I ran down the street like a scared child, furiously punching in directions from Dora the Explorer, and she starts directing me, saying, In a quarter mile, take a left! <laughs> and thankfully, with Dora's help, I found my way back to the strip club. Wait a second... After all that, you you still went you still went to the strip club. It was still early. It's still at this point like ten p.m. So there's there's plenty of night ahead of us, and we all need a drink. <laughs> Your friends were there too. You know, they called the police. The police came. They filled out whatever necessary paperwork. They did all that stuff, and then we're all at the strip club having a beer, and they say to me. How did you get away? They so wanted the story to be heroic, where I'm 
punching and kicking and, you know, I'm a, I'm a badass fighting my way out of this gang. But instead, it's a story about how these guys didn't even notice I was there. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's incredibly lucky, you know, because, I mean, like, oh. what, what if they had seen you? I, I mean, look, I'm, I think I was very, very lucky. You know, when I think about what could have happened that night, when I think about just the, the amount of violence that could have happened, the amount, like, anything, yeah. I'm incredibly lucky to have gotten away. But it's also kind of insulting, frankly. Was I really that unremarkable or insignificant that these guys couldn't even notice that I was in the car with them? Like, is that how little I register on people's radar to be essentially invisible? On Wiretab today, you heard Stephen Gross, author of The Examined Life, How We Lose and Find Ourselves, from Random House Canada. You also heard Jason Mansukis and Missed Connection, written by Raphael Bob Waxberg. You can read more of Raphael's writing at boringoldraphael.tumblr.com. His story was read by Brent Skagford and Martin Duckworth. Wiretap is produced by Mira Birdwin-Tonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Subscribe to the free podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest wiretap ringtone. I didn't misplace my glasses. My daughter has obviously stolen them. A petty accusation against a loved one with every ring of your phone. Thank you.